Success and entrepreneurship is a bit addictive because you get one taste of success or one little thing that goes well and it is the best feeling in the world. Then you spend most of your time dealing with lows and things going horribly wrong, but you keep chasing that high again because you know that if something goes well, even though that high only lasts a couple of days until the next thing goes horribly wrong, that feeling is so addictive. It's like a drug. Episode 8 of How Do You End Up Doing That with me, Alex Jeffers. This podcast is all about chatting to people about the weird and wonderful jobs they've ended up doing to get to where they are right now. And this week's guest, Gary Piazon, has definitely done some slightly unusual things, as you'll come to hear about quite early on in the podcast. He's a really interesting guy, Gary. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and we've worked together on a few things now, but yeah, it's, it's definitely it's, it's a worthwhile listen, and some of the things he talks about surprised even me. Yeah, hopefully you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, you might notice if you listen to previous ones, this intro is a bit more free-flowing and a bit more rambling, but I, I've been reading off a script for all the previous intros, and because the rest of the podcast isn't scripted in any way, it, it felt a bit strange. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully this is, you know, a nicer way to introduce the podcast, less scripted, less structured, less formal, like much of what I do. Uh, so yeah, I think let's dive into our conversation. Um, if you if you listen to it and you want to feedback, if you've got anything you'd like to say to me uh, or anything you'd like me to pass on to Gary, you can drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y-O-U.com. Uh, and yeah, I'd be happy to get any, any emails and answer any questions. So without much further ado, let's uh, jump into our call with Gary. Cheers. Screen. Always, every time any work call happens, she just appears. <laughs> you can, I, you might be able to see my dog, uh, sort of on the mess. Oh, there yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the rear end of the dog. There we go. There she comes. There she comes. Go on, she comes. Oh, there we go. Comes to say hello. Thanks for coming on the call. I've been meaning to get you on for weeks, months since yeah, I did that right. call with Miles at the end of last year. Um, and then I think we we were scheduled to do it, and then uh, someone came up to you, changed it, and then we didn't, yeah, didn't do it, and now now we are doing it. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I know you quite well. We've worked together for quite quite some time now. Do you want to explain in your own words what it what you know? What would you describe your your role at the moment? My role at the moment is a bit of a mess. So, <laughs> uh, primarily because I'm, I'm kind of shoehorned between three different things. So, okay, Porter, which is my baby, continues, but that's a smaller portion of my time at this current moment. Mm -hmm. um, and we can obviously go into that in more detail. Innovators Uncensored is a bigger portion of my time. And the idea of that is building a startup community slash startup media company type thing nice. uh, we haven't really nailed down that nice one sentence pitch for exactly what it is yet and then the other thing is i'm doing some product work at tour hub who are a aggregator platform for multi-day tours um and i'm 
helping to oversee some exciting stuff with AI, um, particularly around content improvement, AI scraping, generation of different things. So all kind of quite interesting. The, the three things there, they're quite, they're quite different, but quite same, but quite the same, you know, they're still very much in that startup, new business, exciting kind of tech sphere, I suppose you could call it. But at the same time, you're not pigeonholed into one quite niche thing. So um, yeah, lots of, lots of transferable skills, but I guess quite a lot to keep you excited on a on a day-to-day basis and in the evenings as well um yeah exactly it definitely takes up a lot of time there's a lot of as you say synergies between them so when i was looking at filling up a bit more time when porter slowed down tour hub uh, was a great opportunity because it's travel uh, so yeah. similar to porter it's a startup which i love working in and the opportunity was around product which is something i've enjoyed at Porter and at kind of previous roles at Admiral and, and other stuff that I've done. So yeah, it just felt like a nice fit to do something. And Innovators Uncensored is born a little bit out of my passion and also Rich, who's who's my co-founder there, our passion for startups and uh, particularly the early stages of startups. So trying to kind of do something in that space, A, to better connect people in that community, but also I guess, to provide a platform for startups. Um, so that's emerged out of a passion for just working in that industry. And, you know, if nothing else, it's opening me up to that community and I guess kind of getting me deeper into that that world, which is no bad thing. Yeah, I think the, the chance to network under any guise or any kind of opportunity to expand that selection of people that you know which is never something that you can turn down. Uh, especially if you've got an idea and an opportunity and an audience uh, to do it with, to get yourself known. It's something that I've always said is that I want to be famous. Uh, famous for what? I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, maybe this hopefully podcast will be a good thing. Hopefully, yeah, yeah ho- hopefully a good thing. Um, yeah, I can't think of not, you know, massive insurance fraud or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, if I was going to get famous for something, it would either be a good thing or something like really tediously boring. Where was the gangster? Was it Al, Al Capone? Um, they yeah. got him, they got him on tax evasion in the end. They couldn't prove that he did any of the, the crimes they actually did, but they got him on got him on tax evasion. So like covered off what you're doing now, lots of cool stuff, lots of interesting stuff. Um, I guess the obvious question then is uh, how do you get into doing that? So if we kind of roll it all the way back, go back to, uh, yes, yeah, school and, um, because you're not, you live in Cardiff now, but you're not, you're not Cardiff born and bred, are you? No. So I'm from Coventry originally. Yeah. Spent all my life in Coventry up to the age of 18. Um, school, sixth form, everything in Coventry. Um, sixth form was... subjects were you doing by the time you got to sixth form, sixth form age? Yeah. So sixth form I did, originally I did maths, ICT, product design, and business dropped maths after the first year and then did ict product design business ict was fine but it was like classic old school ict so i didn't really have any benefit or it was like this is a computer i don't really remember much else (laughs) in terms of the depth of what it went into i don't remember it being particularly useful or helpful in terms of it it was like this is a word processor this is a spreadsheet yeah because my my school i don't know if it was the same for my schools but my school they split the the kind of computer 
qualification in two. So you added the ICT, which was uh, about using computers, how to use Word, Excel, you know, the basically how to how to use the Microsoft package. Yes. Um, and then there was the one that I did, which was computing, um, which oh, was more about the actually the writing the code that would power the databases and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I failed. I failed that horribly. Uh, <laughs> my computing A-level has absolutely no, or failure to get a computing A-level has absolutely no bearing on the rest of my career. <laughs> and this is what's almost laughable a little bit about qualifications <laughs> is, you know, unless it's <clears throat> very, very specialized, like being a doctor or a lawyer, then it's limited how useful they are, I guess. It's just useful for that period of time in your life. Um, yeah. yeah, so ICT, unfortunately, computing wasn't an option, although I don't know if I'd have been any good at it. Product design was great because I'd done graphic design at GCSE and this was like the next evolution where you could play with more machines and like use the vacuum former and all the oh, different okay. saws and drills and actually make stuff as well. And then business was um, something I was interested in. I actually did really well. I got an, an AA level in business. At that point, I was kind of going down that typical path of Okay, you go to university next. Uh, moved to Swansea University, not for many reasons other than uh, I was big into athletics at the time, and I really liked the look of their track. Um, and it was a and it was a long way away. But, you know, that's kind of I guess the the base requirement for a lot of people going to university is where is what university is far away from your home. Yeah, um, yeah. A friend of mine went to Swansea University for the simple reason it was the closest campus to the sea. Yeah, exactly. And it, uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it being, the, you know, I mean, even Swansea itself has a pretty decent city centre beach, like it's sandy, it's, yeah. you know, does the job. And I went there to study international business management with Italian. The idea being that I'd really enjoyed business at A-level. Here's the chance to kind of go into more depth and, and learn it in more detail um, at university. And then Italian, half Italian, half Italian family. So I thought, you know, I couldn't do it at A-level. The school I went to didn't offer it at A-level. Okay. I thought, oh, I could do that. And the course actually involved a third year living in Italy. So right. it's a four-year program with a third year, like an exchange type thing where you go and study in Italy for a year. The idea was that by the end of these four years, I'd be really knowledgeable about business and bilingual. Uh, can you speak Italian? Um, could you speak Italian before you started the course? No. Okay. And I still can't. I have still can't. really I have really good vocabulary, but no grammar. I can't really understand when people speak to me because I'm never around it. So I can say okay. what I want, but I can't ask a question because if somebody responds, then that's the end of the conversation because I don't know what they've said. So right. I just have to make statements, carefully calculated statements rather than asking questions. Uh don't but, you know, I... por favor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh no, I think I was Spanish. <laughs> You know, I, I love going there and I feel like when I am around it, I suddenly realize it's like my brain unlocks all of these words that I forgot I knew. And at some point in my life, I was able to spend a prolonged period there. I'd get to a decent level of competency and, you know, conversational Italian. The problem with the university was I'd grown up, I went to probably about the roughest school in Coventry for secondary school, which was, it taught me a lot of street smarts not so much educationally i mean i still did okay um at gcse level i then actually got to go to a really good sixth form and that was a great experience but then when i went to university i suddenly had all this freedom i didn't really feel like i was necessarily well prepared for all that freedom and kind of got a bit lost you know i didn't really feel like i had any 
support particularly and you know i guess lack of support plus freedom it was kind of fell out so it's like lack of support specifically like family support or support from the university itself i'd i'd say support from the university my my big challenge at university was i went there because i wanted to obviously learn more and expand everything i'd already done and the challenge with the uk university system is the first year doesn't really count and so it's just very generic and you just have to pass the first year to do the years that do count well because of that i felt like i was taking a backward step i was like well i'm not learning anything new I'm like i've already done all of this and so i just completely lost interest and switched off from uni and stopped going to lectures and instead started working so right. i'd worked alongside my my a levels you know all through six of my work i actually worked as a tour guide at warwick castle which was a brilliant job full costume as well um that was a a great job and so i wasn't shy of working and so when i went to university i ended up working three different jobs which also probably contributed to me not going to lectures that often i got a job at river island early mornings doing deliveries so literally taking in the clothes at like four or five in the morning and sorting them out and tagging them and putting them in the stock room i somehow blagged a job with monster energy just as they were launching in the uk to be their collegiate brand ambassador for swansea where i got paid i think it was like 150 pounds a month plus i got a few hundred cans of monster every month plus like stickers temporary tattoos condoms cups like all sorts of things and my job was literally just to take this stuff to parties which was a great job <laughs> And I also worked as a uh, concierge and a leisure assistant at the Marriott Hotel in Swansea. So three completely different jobs. Yeah, very, very sort of, I guess, you know, first thing, very broad ranging jobs. Uh, and also very like, <laughs> unsocial hours <laughs> um, for all of those jobs. So you, it's not like... You know, it's not like you sort of went, right, I'm going to pick a weekend job and I'm just going to work like Saturday, Sunday and do my lectures in the week. You were up at four in the morning tagging stuff. Is there, was there a reason why you didn't go for a job that was better hours? Did, you know, is the reason why you picked all three jobs? Um, and do you, did you think maybe like the doing all the jobs affected your motivation because you thought, well, I've suddenly got money. I'm doing, you know, I'm not doing my degree and i'm earning money instead so on the motivation point yes it definitely affected that um partially because of the money and partially because i'd lost interest in university yeah. because it wasn't teaching me anything which is why i was paying thousands of pounds to go it was yeah. because i was there to learn and felt like i wasn't um and that's where i felt like the university could have possibly supported me more and i okay. I, I didn't really know where to turn to like i just felt like i was this tiny fish in a big pond and i just kind of slipped under the radar the the reason for the three jobs i don't really know i i think i probably started with the river island one then like the monster thing wasn't really a job it was just go to a party and take these cans with you and i guess i was looking for something else like i didn't really want to work shop floor at river island so there wasn't really any progression chance there but at the same time it was it was a job i was earning some money it was safe it was like a couple of days a week when the lorry came and so then the marriott kind of gave me something a bit more well they gave me a lot more hours essentially so it filled in all the gaps it's a definite mix there like i you know for me i would have just gone i would have doubled down on one and just been like no i'm gonna i'm gonna get as many hours in here as i can the monster thing you know i can definitely under, understand that as a as an appeal yeah i don't know why i stuck with river island because it wasn't a particularly enjoyable job but 
uh, I guess I probably like the variety. Um, and it's funny because I'm, I've never really thought about this before, but talking through this now, I've literally gone full circle and I'm back in the same position working three jobs again. Yeah, that's that was just my number. There's, there's a definite parallel between that, but except you, you're not doing a degree on the side, Ian. No. <laughs> to be fair, I wasn't really doing a degree on the side back then. Fair, yeah. So, yeah, so I guess finishing what happened, I ended up doing the first year at university, rocked up to my exams, hadn't studied, hadn't really been to any of the lectures, unsurprisingly didn't pass the first year. So the university were like, like you have to redo the first year. And I tried, I tried bartering with them to be like, look, the first year doesn't count. I promise I'll try in the second year. If you just like, let's just put this behind us and stick me through to the second year. And I'll actually, you know, get my act together and, and try. They weren't having any of it. Okay. <laughs> um, unfortunately. So I was probably even less motivated in the second year having to do it again, having found it so unenjoyable the first time round. And so six months in, I dropped out. Yeah. Chance of becoming fluent in Italian and getting a degree lasted all of a year and a half. So um, you drop out, presumably you're still living in Swansea, but you've signed, I guess you've signed a, a tenancy agreement for the whole year. Uh, to live yep. there. So, yeah. Uh, were you still working the three jobs? Uh, well, so then I figured I should probably actually get a proper job. Right. Um, so I did speak to the Marriott about going permanent, but they couldn't guarantee me permanent hours. I right. think I was probably on zero hour contracts at all of these jobs when they were all the rage. So that was very much hit and miss. It was great when they had hours, but it wasn't a guarantee every week. Mm. So I started looking for something more permanent no idea what I wanted to do. And it was more just to do something, you know, the, yeah. this wasn't the grand plan job. It was just get a job, um, get a job, pay the bills. Don't have yeah, to move exactly. back in with your parents. <laughs> exactly that. So I ended up, uh, stumbling into Admiral's call center, uh, working in customer services for Admiral insurance. I hear a lot of people do that actually every day, just sort of stumble in. Uh, yeah, still quite yeah. from the night before, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it almost was that <laughs> that literal of a stumble. Um, so yeah, f fell into that. Um, completely imagined as a stopgap job. I thought I'd do this for a few months until I get a real job. Didn't yeah. particularly want to work in a call center. Didn't particularly like speaking to people on the phone. I still don't. <laughs> I thought it's a job. You know, it'll, it'll pay the bills. Um, Albeit Were you doing outbound up. sales or people calling no. you to deal with their inquiries? No, so this, was, this was literally people phoning me to complain about stuff. So, you know, it was the, the typical things were like, oh, I'm going away for the weekend. I need to put my brother on the car insurance policy. Or, oh, I forgot to tell you that last year I had a speeding conviction. And I'd be that person who'd be like, yeah, your insurance has gone up by £6,000 and you have to pay it now, otherwise we'll cancel it. And I got to deal with all those delightful phone calls. Right. Um, over the, so I, I worked in, I ended up working in customer services there for about two years and I took just over, I can't remember the exact number, but it was around 25,000 phone calls. That's a lot of pissed off people. It was a lot of pissed off people. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a, a bit of a rough period. Admiral was always a stopgap job for me. I always thought I'd be there a matter of months and get something else. And the whole time I was in the call center, I was looking for other jobs, applying for other things. Um, then one day an opportunity came up. Uh, where they were recruiting internally and Admiral's really big on this internal progression and promotion, which is 
you know, I had periods at Admiral that I didn't particularly enjoy, but I can't say anything bad about the company because I had opportunities there. I don't think I'd have ever had any other company. Um, so from the call center, I ended up moving to work in their uh, recruitment department. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't recruitment in the classic sales type of recruitment that you think of, because this was all inbound. This was people just applying to us for jobs. It wasn't us trying to like headhunt and then sell candidates into other businesses. This was just people saying, I want to come and work for you. So I really enjoyed being outside of the call center because I could suddenly, I guess it wasn't so rigid, like the call center, everything's kind of tracked and monitored and you follow a script and there's not really much room for indi for individuality. Once you're outside of that, you can start to kind of show that you've got something about you. Um, so from there, I progressed to be a, a recruitment officer, which meant I could be involved in running recruitment campaigns for departments. Um, and then I progressed to be a lead recruitment officer where I helped work with the recruitment officers in the team then and help support them with their recruitment campaigns. Um, and I guess the most exciting thing of working in recruitment was it suddenly gave me access to the whole business. So I suddenly got to see all of these different departments. So whereas before I was really siloed in customer services, I was suddenly recruiting not only for the for the different call centers, but kind of other support areas of the business. And so it suddenly kind of gave me a, a really wide reaching understanding of, of this huge organization. That was also great in terms of networking and meeting all sorts of different people around the business and then putting myself in front of them to kind of say, you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. So that, that was really exciting. It also led me to start working in Cardiff. So this all up until this point, I'd been working for Admiral in Swansea. When I moved in to recruitment, I started doing a bit of both um, and working in Cardiff. That's where the head office is. So that put me in front of kind of more important people. Um, and then there was a Christmas party, which was like one of the support department floors had like a shared Christmas party. And I'm next to this lady and we get talking. And so I was asking her, you know, what she does. And she says, oh, I the head of investor relations. I was like, that sounds interesting. You know, what, what's all that about? And so she's explaining about how they essentially prepare Admiral's half and fully results and how they speak to investors and analysts on the phone and they go to London to run the actual present the results to the city. And then they go on a roadshow where they meet kind of high profile investors in the company. A few months later, I really, I noticed on the internal jobs board, there was a, a vacancy for an investor relations manager. I reached out to, to the lady that I'd met before, uh, Louise O'Shea, who ended up becoming the CEO of Confuse.com. Later, uh, I think she was chairwoman for FinTech Wales. Really, really impressive, impressive person. So I reached out to her and said, look, I'm obviously not an investor relations manager. I have no experience in this area, but would you be prepared to take on someone at a more junior level and train them up? I don't think there'd been a lot of interest or the people that had applied weren't necessarily a good fit. So I think she was like, okay, I'll open to taking a punt on you. You have to do these like different pricing tests. So it was like the GMAT maths test and stuff like that to prove that you have sufficient financial literacy to work in this type of a role. Luckily I did really well at those. Um, so that kind of moved me, you know, from the call center to recruitment to all of a sudden working in investor relations. Um, and I'd only been at the company four and a bit years at that point. And all of a sudden I remember probably within my first week at Admiral, I'm suddenly sat in this office with the CEO, the COO, the CFO, 
uh, a load of other senior managers. We've got our corporate uh, like brokers from like UBS and Bank of America Merrill Lynch on the phone. And I'm sitting in this room thinking, how am I in this room? I think everybody else in that room was thinking, who's this bloke in the room with us? Um, but that was a you know one of those kind of pinch me moments. Yeah, all of a sudden yeah, of I'm sitting with like the people who run the company, and I'm like, this is odd. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> proper, proper, like unbelievable levels of, I guess I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but there's a there, there must have been a moment at that time where you thought, how have I ended up here from going through you know Swansea University dropping out first year or failing first year, dropping out second yeah. year. Suddenly I'm in the boardroom of Wales's largest company giving a presentation to the people who are above them. Like um, it must have just been such a, yeah, such a unbelievable moment to be in at that time. And I guess for quite a while afterwards, you must've been thinking, well, where does it go from here? Oh, massively. Um, yeah, I had, a, I had a really, really good time in investor relations. And that really, I guess, cemented my place in the company and gave me the opportunity to foster really strong relationships with that senior management group, which obviously did me no harm in terms of then progressing from, from that point. So I probably spent a, a few years in, in investor relations and I was kind of starting to get that itch for something different again. So I ended up moving to do commercial management in Admiral's telematics business. Telematics being the little box that goes in your car and monitors how you drive in exchange for, if you drive well, cheaper premiums. So that was great because suddenly, you know, I'd gone from call center recruitment, IR, where I'd got, you know, really good understanding of the inner workings of a FTSE 100 company. During that time, I'd also been able to get involved in some investment projects because obviously admiral has big pots of money that you know they want to do stuff with so it's not just sat there so, so that was great this then gave me an, another string on my bow so to speak going into commercial management and starting to understand contracts and tenders and you know i was kind of helping to run like 10 million pound tenders for people wanting to supply telematics equipment you know across like the us the uk italy and that was from companies like vodafone and you know big organizations wanting to to get involved in this so that was super super interesting again i probably spent 18 months two years there and then henry who'd been the original ceo stepped back and david who was the co-founder became ceo i ended up working directly for him as a kind of internal business consultant type role it was a blend of a preparing him for kind of upcoming meetings and doing research for him it was also doing random projects around the group. So reviewing the performance of our life insurance business, uh, did some stuff in America, looking at a bit of work with compare.com, which was the American version of confused.com, like all sorts of different things. And obviously, you know, David was my boss. So I got to be part of kind of really cool meetings and uh, really be on that inside track of what's happening. And, you know, the conversations that, you know, were really interesting and didn't always necessarily lead somewhere, but I guess it's like thrilled finger on the pulse kind of knowing, especially at that level, it is a FTSE 100 company. And for, I mean, for me, like Admiral's just, it's just like, it's always, it's a staple of the Welsh, of Cardiff especially, but it's a staple of Wales, just like Brains and um, Pendarin, um, 
other things that are not alcohol um <laughs> as well. races it, you know the it's such a an inherently welsh thing can't imagine what my kind of thought process would be in that in those meetings and being tasked with that sort of responsibility at that time of yeah la- landing in that situation it was i mean there was plenty of imposter syndrome there was plenty of this is super cool on the flip side though the there was also thoughts of where do I go next? Because there wasn't, yeah, I kind of created this role a little bit, uh, you know, or David was looking for someone and I was kind of thinking, what's my next challenge? Um, because, you know, once I'd got out of that, that first bit of the call center, I suddenly realized that this company is going to give me scope to grow and try new things. Um, and like I said at the beginning, I don't think I'd have had these opportunities or the breadth of opportunities at any other company because a lot of these roles that I moved to, I wasn't, I didn't have any experience in that area before, you know, I'd obviously been good at a previous role doing something different and demonstrated enough to then go and learn something new. Yeah. I was kind of in this role thinking, where do I go from here? Because there wasn't an obvious progression. It was also just me. It was a team of one, you know, and because David was my manager, he had more important things like running the company and plenty of other direct reports who were a lot more senior to me. It, it kind of got to a point where I was like, well, like, I don't really know where this is going anymore. Like, this is enjoyable and it's and it's a great position to be in, but I don't know where it's going. Kind of part of this role, I ended up doing a three-month placement in Confused.com, doing a project on resource management. So Confused felt like they had this issue where everybody kept saying, we need more developers, we need more developers. But nobody really knew what the existing developers were doing and did they need okay. more developers? So I did a bit of a project to try and get a bit of a handle on that. That gave me a bit of an insight into things like the world of agile and you know those types of, of things in terms of you know measuring work or you know understanding what people are doing and how it's being measured or reported and, and stuff like that. So yeah. all these different, you know, work management type tools and processes and systems. It, kind of open my eyes to that that a little bit um so sort of the project project manager uh kind of role lingo yeah yeah uh, exactly um yeah and again i'd never been in that type of a position or had exposure to that before so that was really good again i was thinking well this is a, a short-term thing i could stay here but i wasn't sure project management was for me and one of the, the people i'd become quite friendly with during the the previous years was a guy called scott cargill who was the who was heading up Admiral launching a lending business. So obviously as a traditionally a car insurance company, Admiral's always thinking like all big companies should, how do we protect ourselves against changes in the future? How do we diversify our income? Part of that was looking at other insurance businesses. So Admiral set up a home insurance businesses. Part of it was looking at non-insurance. And so it started looking at, at lending, which felt like a good fit. And so I'd done a bit of work for Scott previously. Um, I, done a presentation to his senior management group talking about innovation and, you know, opportunities in, in fintech. I did a couple of different things there. I initially did a bit of time with them, with their marketing team working on car finance, but ultimately I ended up coming in to look after open banking and try and implement open banking into Admiral's lending business. Um, open banking being the ability for you to share your banking data, essentially with another 
another business. Um, yeah, so I can go into my Monzo account on my phone and I can see um, my Santander account and my NatWest yeah, exactly. account all in the same place. There's the kind of the what it's most famously used for, but there's other other kind of systems available there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was really exciting for me because it was a kind of product management type role. It was innovative. It was a little bit startupy because it was like this small part of Admiral that was kind of up and up and going. Yeah, spent loads of time on on open banking, ran a tender, which obviously I'd learned previously working in telematics. Got a, a side on an open banking partner, got them through to, to live. I think we were the first UK use case of open banking being used in car finance, which was really exciting. Oh, okay. um, and we essentially yeah. used it as a, a risk predictor. So for certain customers who, um, you know, when we did the credit check, they were a no. We could then use open banking to say, well, actually, are they a no? Is there more information we could use to qualify this? Or or maybe they come back as an uncertain. And so open banking would give us a more granular look at their accounts to say, this person is actually spending 90% of their salary every month on gambling. Probably we don't want to lend to them, you know, that type of stuff. So that was really interesting. And that was kind of the end of my Admiral career. So all in all told after those, you know, the initial idea of being a stopgap, I was there about 12 years, 11 or 12 years. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's a long stopgap. It, yeah, it definitely is a long stopgap. I mean, you know, <laughs> at that point it was, I don't know, about a third of my life by the time I'd left, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, of course. Um, Jeez. Um, yeah, which was a little that's... bit depressing when you think of it like that. Well, um, I, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, we think you were that... in school for a similar amount of time. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is crazy. Um, but one thing that had been constant throughout my time at Admiral was that I'd always been hankering to do something outside of Admiral. And I think one thing, even though I was there for so long, I learned amazing things I you know had incredible experience the corporate world wasn't really for me and I, I felt like I figured that out quite early um and so I'd constantly been trying to set things up on the side and launch kind of side businesses so you know going back to the very very early days um probably when I was still in the call center uh myself and a friend called James um had a soap company called the soap basket where we bought a load of wholesale soap and tried to sell that online well anything unique about soaps or was uh was it like a fight club kind of situation that you were making them from the fat of rich people <laughs> <laughs> i wish it was that exciting i I'm, i can't really remember the, the details of it i think we just bought a load of wholesale soap and tried to flog it online package it up individually and it was fine we sold a bit online we didn't sell a lot and then right. you know, had some in fact i think a couple of years ago james found some old soap basket soap um that had obviously been in the back of his cupboard somewhere um i was gonna say if you still got some knocking about and for, not anymore we did use it um so yeah that you know that 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 kind of i guess i'd done a few other things online you know i tried to do a few random online things and didn't really go anywhere but that was like my first kind of proper taste of business Around the same time, I launched a, a jewellery business called Piazzon Accessories, really individual name. Um, I'd seen online you could buy costume jewellery wholesale really cheap. I was like, this looks cool. Because um, it all looked like decent stuff. Um, you know, obviously, it was like crappy, yeah, I mean, literally costume jewellery. So it was all like, you know, with yeah. a 
ring or whatever, like really dirt cheap. And I was thinking, oh, it's probably some good margins that could be made here. The challenge with that was I didn't really understand who I was targeting with this. I didn't really know anything about okay. jewellery. I didn't bother to get anybody involved who did know anything about jewellery. So I just bought a load of jewellery that I thought looked nice and then tried to flog <laughs> it online. Built a nice, you know, templated e-commerce site. But again, I ended up just with a couple of boxes of crappy jewellery because I had no idea what I was buying or who I was selling it to. Um, but again, that taught me something because I was like, probably should have got somebody involved who knows about buying jewellery or selling jewellery or anything to do with jewellery. Um, yeah, did you have an interest in jewellery at all? No. Like, I just no, okay. was, not, I, not, I even was like just passing... a, not even a passing interest. I was, I guess, captivated by the buy low, sell high mantra. I was like, yes. there's, there's some good margins to be made here, but I just couldn't figure out how to make it work without any knowledge of what I was selling. Um, there's probably a lesson there for people. I think so. I've, I've been um, listening to quite a lot of uh, the, the Louis Theroux podcast recently. There's like in the common theme that I've noticed in all of the people who are on there is about the amount of research that they do. Um, and, you know, you're talking like the, the upper echelons of the success there, but the the amount of research that people put in, um, they're like, yeah, I'd spend like 12, 12 hours a day just like on the internet researching this thing and just being hyper, hyper focused into yeah. what it is that they want to do. And it makes me think definitely about like I, I got lucky with uh, the web stuff in the i just went hey let's you know let's be a web designer but it does make me think about the toy shop uh the toy shop that we set up and think about uh yeah maybe we should have done a bit more research as to how much like you know a bit of a plan a bit of a plan there uh who are we selling to how are we going to get to market what's our margins how much money do we actually make when all of our costs are taken into account all that sort of yeah. stuff the problem these days, particularly now, and it wasn't so much the case back then, but particularly now, it's, it's so easy to get something set up. You can just have a whim of an idea and you can have a live shop or business or whatever by the end of the day. Like, it's that easy. And, yeah. you know, particularly with things like, you know, drop shipping and print on demand that you don't even have to hold stock for certain businesses. And so it's so easy to set, set things up. And that almost further detracts from the it, it almost seems stupid to be like, well, why would I bother wasting a load of time figuring out those things? Because it's just so easy to set something up, you know, just mm. go and do the classic build it and they will come mantra. Uh, and it is hard because even with the best idea in the world and the, you know, the most amount of research, it still doesn't mean your business is going to work. And there's still going to be weird things that happen after you go live that you can't foresee or when you roll it out at a bigger scale, um, you know, and you, there's companies who raise crazy amounts of money and can't get it right. So, yeah, you know, business is difficult, but I was bitten by that bug quite early on. Um, and I knew that was where I wanted to be. Um, so it was just a case of keep plugging away until something works. Yeah, so I think after, uh, sorry. my favorite uh, sort of, well, the, the reason sort of how I ended up getting to know you was uh, through foot um which was i guess the the thing like the precursor to porter almost or the, the business before but i think the the way that that came to end is i think it's a great there's a great lesson to be learned in 
uh, that story potentially. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So, I mean, just for completeness, there was one other business before Thut, which was a company called Studentopoly, and that was like right move for students. Okay. So, um, that initially started with me just using a kind of templated real estate type website as a base. I pretty much just went and pestered a load of landlords in Swansea, and I was like, "Do you want to list on my website?" free initially the idea was then that you'd monetize by charging the landlords to list and that was okay I, around the same time as i did that probably about a year after there were quite a few startups who entered that space realizing that nothing had been done in that space for about 20 years and they all had right. serious serious financial backing um i tried to do something smarter obviously my background isn't web of any sort like i feel like i understand it i just can't do it so i found a technical co-founder through Shell Livewire, which used to be a like entrepreneur hub run by Shell as in the petrol company. Uh, they used to have like this, it was called Livewire, like an entrepreneur type hub or small business hub for young people. Uh, so I met this guy through one of the forums or something on there. Nice guy. He was a web developer. So we, we built some bespoke stuff. We had a handful of landlords and a handful of cities and it was fine. It just never really went anywhere. So that just kind of fizzled out and died. But towards the back end of that was when I was thinking about the next thing, Foot, uh, which was originally the Good Sock Company. James, the same James from the Soap Basket, and I were sat in work. Uh, he also worked at Admirals, uh, still does. And we were sat near to each other and, you know, we'd go for a wander around town to get a coffee at lunch or whatever. And both of us quite enjoyed fun, colourful, bright socks. We're thinking... How hard could this be to build a business with fun, colorful, bright socks? And again, I feel like we got, we were on something because it was on the cusp of colorful socks becoming popular. Like colorful socks weren't really a thing when we started for, they were on like, there were companies like Happy Socks who were big, but it wasn't like now you go into every single shop and you can, you, like you struggle to find a pair of black socks now. It was the other way around when it was harder to find colorful socks and you're boring black or white socks. So we're like, why don't we start a fun, colourful sock company? Started reaching out to loads of sock suppliers, which was an absolute nightmare trying to find a reliable sock supplier. A, because we were obviously looking for smaller quantities and B, because they were just useless. Like so many people we spoke to were so unreliable. It was a nightmare. So we went through just about every sock company in Europe trying to find a supplier. We were also trying to think, what is our USP? Like, what is going to stand us out against Happy Socks, for example? The initial idea was that we wanted some sort of a, a good giving back kind of background to, to the sock company. So we wanted to do kind of socks with purpose where we donate a portion of sales to a charity. In the early days, we were looking at doing augmented reality socks and playing off the AR craze as it was back then. Yeah, um, that was a big thing at the time, wasn't it? It was a really big thing at the time. So we were thinking, A, yeah. this could open us up to funding because uh, I'd never raised. So, you know, what I realized with um, with Studentopoly was that that business needed money. Like the reason that didn't work fundamentally was because it had no money. So it didn't go anywhere. Like we couldn't reach people fast enough. We couldn't develop fast enough because it was just two of us doing it as a side project. Like it needed more resource to get somewhere very much with the good sock company we're thinking how can we make this investable how can we make this reach a bigger audience and how can we make it stand out and the whole you know the world's first augmented reality sock is a bit of a headline grabber because it sounds stupid you know what why do you want an ar sock but 
but anyway that was kind of how we uh how we started it and so we ended up having like qr codes stitched onto the top of the sock and stuff but then we realized that everyone has a different shaped foot and that would stretch the qr code and so it would look different yeah. for it and it was a nightmare and also we were at the very very beginning of ar adoption and obviously when you think about like the type the average phone that people had it was like well probably 90 percent of people aren't really going to be able to use this but five percent might be able to use it amazingly or something because they've got the latest like whatever so we're kind of wondering what to do the team was four of us at the time at some point we got you involved to do some website stuff for us and we also found investment so connected with a guy through linkedin who was very wealthy was really interested in socks because he'd almost invested in another sock business had loads of connections so we snapped his hand off we took a small amount of money we decided to go third partners because the interesting bit to us wasn't so much the money it was more the doors he could open for us as somebody who was a yeah. successful businessman great so that was when we rebranded from the good sock company to foot um we found a great sock supplier in italy and our usp was the fact that we we're making great socks in italy we decided to give five percent to war child and we had a partnership with war child and to help children in war-torn areas around the world and we also worked with a different designer every month so we decided on a subscription model for the socks so you pay 10 pounds a month and each month we'll send you a new pair of socks through your letterbox and each month will be designed by a different designer and we wanted to work with like a really wide range of people. So not just traditional designers. We wanted to work with like tattoo artists or architects or, you know, anybody in that realm of design who could do something a little bit different. So the first thing we did was stick a landing page up, that, which you helped us with because we wanted a loyalty scheme or referral scheme that said, uh, sign up, refer 15 people. And when we go live, you get a free pair of socks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the home page said sign up and we'll send you a free pair of socks and then after you put in your email address it was then like the messaging was a bit clearer and it was like actually you need to refer 15 people or something along those lines it, it was yeah it was uh, um the, i think it was like the top 10 people who referred somebody or the top 10 referrers would get a free pair of socks i think that was that was the deal it was something like that but but we well we asked you to refer quite a lot of people um but we didn't make that clear on the first page the first page was basically get free socks put your yeah. email address and get free socks that took off and in the space of about a week we had something like twenty five thousand people sign up to this which was phenomenal the doubt we also had about three complaints to the advertising standards agency for misleading advertising <laughs> because the terms of the thing wasn't clear. And so we had letters from the ASA basically saying, stop doing this. Right. Um, <laughs> which at that point, we'd already got, you know, 25,000 emails. So we were like, fine, you know, we've, we've got a nice base of people that we can launch this, this product to. Uh, the problem then was it took us about 10 months or something ridiculous to actually get the first lot of socks sorted and ready to actually turn the company on and start selling socks so by that point our twenty-five thousand audience had gone from kind of semi-warm because i'm sure a lot of them were spammy to freezing cold um yeah so we launched and this big audience that we had was useless essentially that being said like we got it live we had a small but growing number of customers and we were shipping socks to I don't know, 10, 11 different countries and 
James okay. and I would be packaging our socks up, going to the post office with a big bag of sock envelopes and our pre-filled out form. And it was it was great fun. We're constantly looking for ways we could kind of supercharge our growth and I guess recreate some of the stuff that we'd had with that pre-launch sign-up. We ended up doing a deal with O2 Priority where we'd go on O2 Priority and O2 customers would get uh, their first month free. They'd, so they'd have to sign up, put their card details in, they'd get their first month free and they could cancel then if they wanted. They basically just get a free pair of socks. So we spoke to our investor about this. He was really on board. Um, we were trying to negotiate the terms. We were like, we do this with like 100 customers to see if it works and understand what the retention is. O2 were like, now nah, we want you to do at least 1,000. Our investor said, well, why don't you do a week? You know, run it for a week, see how many we get, and then we can maybe do something else. Another point is I'll support everything. Great. So we go live on the first day. We have something like 5,000 people redeem this deal. We're thinking this is ridiculous. O2 are on the phone because they're like, this is insane. Like we never see redemption like this apart from on like the Boots meal deal thing. Um, they're like, is this all okay? And we were like, yeah, it's great. Um, you know, we're kind of updating our, our investor. And then the next day turned around and said, uh, I'm not supporting it. I'm not paying for any of this. And we were like, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> this, this was your idea. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not paying for this. So uh, that left us in a, a bit of a difficult position. We had, you know, 5,000 plus people who signed up asking for a free pair of socks. We didn't have the stock to send them. You know, we didn't 5, have 5,000 pairs of socks in stock, which was fine because, you know, we, we discussed how we were going to approach this. The other challenge was we didn't have enough money in the bank to send the socks, even if we did have them, because that would have been at least kind of seven-ish grand worth of postage. But again, this was all done on the premise of our investor fronting us the cash to support this deal. And we needed yeah. something like 20% of customers to retain and then drop off at the normal rate for it to break even. Okay. So we had to go to O2 and be like, look, I'm really sorry, but we actually can't fulfill any of these socks and please take it off O2 priority now because, you know, we can't do this. O2 were uh, upset would be a, a, an understatement. Um, <laughs> they personally threatened to sue James and I for 100 grand each. So you've got wow. the, the UK's second biggest telecoms company personally threatening to sue you. We're like, well, we'll just shut the company down and, you know, that'll solve all our problems. Uh, so we, problem is we couldn't do that because we didn't have the voting rights. And our investor said if we do that, he'd sue us. And he has these really fancy lawyers. So we're like, well, okay. We're kind of stuck between a bit of a rock and a hard place here. We went to O2 groveling and we're like, look, we're really sorry. Like we genuinely entered into this on good faith on the premise that, you know, our, our investor was going to be able to support us with the cash flow to, to fulfill this deal. We sent them copies of the bank statements to be like, look, we literally have no money. We're not messing you around. Like we can't yeah, afford yeah. to do this. Uh, luckily we never heard anything from them. The situation with the investor didn't really get any better. Like we just basically gave him all of our stock and let him have the business in, right. in a nutshell. Um, but what was really interesting was, yes, that was a really bitter and, horrible end a very very stressful end of it but what was interesting was o2 emailed all of those customers saying look this can't you know this isn't happening cancel basically we then emailed all the customers saying look we're really sorry we can't fulfill this you'll have to cancel your subscription after all that we still had over a thousand people subscribed which no would have been 10 grand a month revenue if obviously <laughs> we could have kept going and we made about a 50 percent profit margin on the sock so we'd have been making money you know, and that was the 20% that we needed. And that was after us and O2, we'd both emailed them saying, this isn't happening. We still had about oh. over a thousand. And that's, that just shows the power of subscriptions and how sticky they are. Yeah. So yeah. it felt like we were like this close to actually 
making something uh oh. which was really upsetting um for me that that fired me up even more because i was like i've got unfinished business uh yeah i i need to do something else but also i was so kind of drained from the horrible ending of but i was like i need a bit of a break and i don't just want to rush into into the next thing so i spent a little while i had a few different ideas that came up and yeah, i thought about them and looked into them and then i was like maybe they're not quite viable out the blue, I was going to a conference with Admiral and I needed to book somewhere to stay. So I went on to booking.com. I said, you know, I need to go to London on these dates. Great. So then I went on the map view to see what hotels were actually near the, the conference center that I was going to. And there were all these pins on the map. Great. So I clicked on a pin. Details popped up. It said no rooms available. I was like, that's a bit weird. Fine. Back to the map. Found another one. Clicked on it details popped up no rooms available i'm like the first thing you ask me is when am i going away you now show me rooms that don't have hotels that don't have availability yeah so so i thought i'll try the list view where you've got this never-ending list of hotels mm. and it just so happened that the first hotel on the list actually looked quite nice so i clicked into it and it wasn't in london it was in milton Keynes, and it was at the <laughs> top of the list because it was paying the most commission not because it was a good match for me okay so that got me thinking well surely there's a better way of doing this and surely i'm not not the only person who's had this horrible experience of searching for hotels so yeah. i started speaking to colleagues at work strangers in coffee shops friends family and pretty much everyone i spoke to had a similar version of the same story the thing that it kept coming back to was a the time it takes like people were talking about having to you know write off a whole weekend to try and decide where they're gonna stay and a lot of that bubbled down to the fact that there's just too much choice. And you have this, this paradox of choice where essentially the more options you have, the harder it becomes to make a decision. That led me to think, well, look, surely, surely something could be done here. And that was the, the kind of genesis point of, of Porter. And the idea initially was how can we do the hard work of going through that list of 10,000 potential options and say, look, you know, 9,970 of these are crap. Yeah. why are we showing you them here's the 10 20 30 that you should be paying attention to have a look at those you know we've sifted out the rest here's the 10 that you should be looking at that was kind of the, the birth of, of porter literally my own frustration um and and it also it felt like a good fit because i really love travel i really love hotels um i previously worked in a hotel going back to the marriott days and the reason I got the job at the Marriott was because I love nice hotels so much. I wanted to see behind the scenes. I wanted to see the inner workings of a hotel. So that was kind of one of the reasons I applied for the Marriott in the first place was to be behind the scenes of, of the hotel. Okay. Um, I mean, it's interesting you say that because there's, there's a definite correlation there between, you know, your interest there of being within the FTSE 100 company and seeing behind the scenes being in the boardroom and seeing how that machine works and then also being... Uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, a hotel, you know, and, th and that kind of ticking, you know, ticking your boxes. Um, yeah, exactly. A, a real, a real continuity there about an interest in the inner workings of of systems and how how they are put together. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and Porter, like I said, it just it just seemed to tick so many boxes for me when I was thinking what next in terms of startup opportunities. You know, it was a big market. There was a really obvious problem, it, and it was something I was genuinely interested and passionate about like i love travel and 
is there a thing about hotels compared to like airbnbs was it you know would you say that your interest in travel lies far more in the 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 concierge side of things and the the being looked after and the high endness of a of a hotel rather than a self cater uh, luxury stay in a um, sort of an Airbnb kind of situation. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I've stayed in both. Uh, I've stayed in plenty yeah. of Airbnbs and I've had great experiences and stayed in some super cool places. But part of the beauty of a hotel is the service. Yeah. You know, like an Airbnb is a room fundamentally. A hotel is a room plus service. Yeah, it's the experience that you get. Exactly. Yeah. It's more often than not because there's crappy service. So yeah, that, that definitely really interests me. Um, yeah, that was the birth of Porter. This was October 2019. Mm-hmm. So I was like, right, I've had this idea. Now I need to do something about it. So I need a team. I need some money because this is a huge problem. And, you know, it's a massive market. I can't do this on my own. Started to try and reach out to some potential investors, uh, primarily through contacts I, I'd met at Admiral. Um, which was a great kind of starting point for that. Um, and also thinking about team. Then four or five months later, COVID happened and travel took an absolute battering and was one of the worst hit sectors. So I was like, what am I doing? Like, this isn't going anywhere. And it was, you know, at that point, it was like, are people ever going to travel again? Is this even going to be a thing? So there was a lot of uncertainty initially. That, that whole time, there was, because we'd never experienced it before, it was also new, it was very much, like, the only point of reference people had was Walking Dead and, you know, apocalypse films with yeah. the, the, the entire world shut down. We were all told to stay in our homes, there was a deadly virus going around that, you know, it, it was proper, you know, end of day sort of stuff, wasn't it? And then the, the thought then of kind of reaching out to an investor and saying, hey, I've got an idea about booking making the experience of booking hotels better. You remember hotels, those things that you yeah. go to and other people, you know, you travel outside of five miles of, <laughs> of a radius of your house and not yeah. to buy essential food. Toilet uh, roll. Yeah, toilet roll, <laughs> uh, yeast, bread flour. You, you know, you, you go and enjoy yourself outside and away from your house. Remember those things? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to give me a load of money to make that better? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. There was a big period when COVID happened where I was like, this probably isn't going to happen. Then when things started to get back to a bit of normality, it gave me a chance to reflect and be like, is this still a problem? You know, does this problem still exist? Is is there going to be a market for this? Luckily, the answer was yes. And I think when the first lockdown was lifted, if anything, it, it reinforced that even stronger because the demand for travel was huge yes. because it had been so suppressed. I was like, if anything, this is the perfect time to be doing this because people are desperate to be traveling. Yeah. And so people are, you know, in their droves turning to online, you know, if anything, it it, it it closed a lot of, you know, physical travel agencies and stuff and pushed even more people online. So there was like a real combination of a lot of good things for the, that type of travel industry. Um. And I guess the beauty as well was that during COVID, no one had been able to progress anything because they were laying off staff and, you know, just trying to keep the lights on. So us as a nimble startup, we're in this perfect position where we could just kind of build something and try and attack the market. We were very lucky, um, or I was very lucky in, in managing to secure 
some initial funding of about £100,000 to get things off the ground. You very kindly introduced me to Miles, who I know yes. who in, in last week's uh, podcast, who'd obviously had a load of experience working in startups and working with kind of, you know, I guess like enterprise infrastructure and a team both sides of, of the tech world, I guess. So it was really well placed to come in and help break the back of what we were trying to do. And one of the big challenges we had was, well, we need some hotels to be able to sell. Where are we going to get those from? So that initially started with a partnership with booking.com, uh, later became a partnership with hotel beds that gave us control over the supply and pricing and stuff came with millions of problems because travel and hotels besieged by horrible, horrible legacy tech, um, lots of dodgy data and it's a mess of an industry, but it's so huge. I don't think anyone's for like. Unless somebody is seriously well-funded, I mean like hundreds of millions of pounds well-funded, they're not going to do it. Like there's other startups who've tried and have raised in the magnitude of tens of millions and haven't even come close to cracking it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The underlying kind of infrastructure piece of hotels is horrible. So that was a big challenge that we constantly battled with. We initially set out trying to do a direct consumer proposition, put in your details and we'll match you to hotels. That fundamentally struggled because you're competing against booking.com and Expedia. And there was a couple of problems. One is how do you find people at that perfect sweet spot of, I want to book a hotel right now. And if you don't get them, then how do you keep hold of them so that when they are ready to, you're in, you're the perfect person to say, yes, you know, I'll book with Porter. And because we're a startup trying to build all of those processes that all the other companies have had for years and refined for years, like, you know, the perfect, email chaser system that's going to send you an email every day for the next six months until you book like we you know we didn't have any of that so it was very much trying to learn on the fly and there was a lot of research that went into porter beforehand but there was a lot of stuff not being in the industry obviously wasn't prepared for that being said i think we came at things from a different angle which worked in our favor but i think in hindsight maybe somebody with more experience would have been a good early hire somebody else has a bit of a balance on the team to be like you should be thinking about emails, for example. You know, I think yeah. I think that would have been a great use of our time. But also, you, you spend so much of your time firefighting as a startup. You've got little money, no resource. You can't do it all. Like, we literally had a team of, like, you, Miles, a front-end dev, and that was our tech team. And you're trying to take on Booking.com and Expedia, who both spend, like, 10, 5 to 10 billion annually on, well, I think it's 5 billion each annually on marketing they basically spend combined an admiral every year on marketing in terms of like you know what admiral's worth as a company it's ridiculous i remember speaking to someone um ages ago he was working he worked for is it i want to say ecosia but i think i see either a search engine or a brand washing up liquid um <laughs> but they they make the they they do the sort of the eco-friendly search engine that was a thing a few years ago sort of startup and i was saying to him i've got chatting to him about like you know about people who work there and stuff like that and he said yeah for a for a search engine we're incredibly small um google have more people who make decisions on icons that are used on the search bar than we have working in our entire team ah oh. Okay, <laughs> you know, the sort of the, the variety of scale from startup to big business. And yeah, booking.com, 
Expedia, uh, Verbo, Airbnb, the, you know, they're household yeah. names that people, yeah, exactly. people know. And you just think like, you know, I speak to companies all the time and they say, oh, we need to book a hotel. We'll go to booking.com. You know, they, they, they just, that's where they go. That's their instant yeah. reaction and their instant And that's thought. because they spend all that money. So they're front of mind all the time because you see them everywhere. You know, yeah. every time you search, they're top of Google. Every time you're watching football, they're all around the pitch. You know, they are everywhere. Same kind of um, anecdote. Google in London has a team of 20 people just dedicated to the booking.com account. That was five <laughs> times the size of our team. And that's just looking after Google's uh, booking.com's ad spend. And that's yes. not even within their own company, you know? Um, so the, the scales of, of, of these businesses is, is ridiculous. Um, and we really struggled just to get to that critical mass because we fundamentally, we didn't, we weren't able to spend enough money to make dent and you know and the problem is, again is we have a finite amount of money so we raised another 200 ish so total mm -hmm. raised about 300,000 which if you never worked in a startup you think oh, that's loads of money you know 300,000 yeah. that's a third of a million but the reality is it's nothing you know it's not even yeah. a drop in the ocean and that money does not go very far and yeah you're kind of in this battle where it's like okay you're spending on team and you're trying to spend on marketing and so that, that money just disappears so quickly. And again, I, I say about the scale of the team, we had three people working in tech trying to yeah. build this cool stuff, but you couldn't build it fast enough. Like the backlog, I could add 10 things a day to the backlog, which I did most days. I would be like, you oh, there's 10 new things <laughs> we need to be doing. But we couldn't build the tech fast enough to get to where we needed to be in terms of all these processes and systems and you know yeah. all this great stuff while fundamentally trying to build like this game-changing travel matching algorithm that was like the core when i kind of started with porter it was not so much it was like obviously the, the whole idea was about making it easier but the the crux of what we were trying to do was the quiz um yeah. asking people the so the, the the 10 questions about what is it that you you know not asking people would you rather stay in the city or would you rather stay in the country we were, it was but it was a lot more personal than that trying to get these yeah. like tease these answers out of people to build up the travel persona and the travel profile which then the hotels were scored you know in accordance with the personas and then you know there was an algorithm there to match people up with the perfect hotel for them um yeah. based on well, the answers think... that they gave to the quiz I think we did a decent job of that. And also you have to mm. remember, this is without, we didn't really have any data, so we couldn't do any like snazzy machine learning or anything like that. Also, if we'd have been three years later, so we, you know, we obviously tried to build like the, what do we call it? The, the, um, Porter summary thing. I can't remember what the term was we used. Um, Porter pick or I don't know, whatever it was. And we, we, but we basically explained why, you know, again, it, it was fairly fairly simple in the background but we not only do we do all this logic to rank and score and weight hotels we then mm. also would explain in kind of plain english why we've matched you to this hotel and you think if we'd have done this three years later with open ai yeah. <laughs> it would have been you know layla the uh like hotel recommendation startup that's been backed by paris hilton has raised like two million or something and has just bought another company and that's using OpenAI's technology, and it's not even very good. Like, I think what we could have done, timing is everything, I guess. Um, yeah. And so yeah. we we got to a point where 
we burned through most of that money and we still really hadn't hit critical mass which meant we haven't really been able to prove or disprove anything we were trying to do um because we just didn't have the data to say whether it works or not i guess the tactic changed to how can we just tap into existing audiences of people cheaply and that that led us to launching collections and the idea behind collections was that it was essentially going to be spotify playlists for hotels anybody could create a collection of hotels and promote that to their audience so you could have influencers create a collection of all the hotels they've stayed in and promote it to their audience so if you're following this influencer you can really easily see in one place all of the hotels they've stayed in and get pricing and availability and book them mm-hmm. um it would also allow us to leverage that person's knowledge and experiences so you could get a fitness influencer build a collection of hotels with good gyms of vegan food influencer build a collection of hotels that did a great vegan breakfast like there were loads of possibilities here it ultimately led us down a route of repositioning the business to doing a b2b to c strategy so we started going after businesses who had an audience of people who were traveling and we'd say look we'll help you essentially provide you with the tools to offer accommodation to your audience and we'll do that on a commission share basis or split whatever we earn if they book a hotel and that was interesting. We secured partnerships with the likes of Sheffield's Utilita Arena, Cardiff City Football Club, um, a couple of race organisers, Great British Entrepreneur Awards. Um, the challenge we had was by the time we got all that live, the company pretty much had no money. So the team had pretty much dwindled. So a lot of it sat on my shoulders in terms of trying to outreach to these companies, get them interested, get them on board. Then there'd be a learning process of a few months of kind of optimizing what we built to their specific user base to make it work for them and help them promote it, you know, figure out how they should be offering it to their customers. And each of them had a completely different audience. So interacted completely differently. What we were finding was it was almost like a four to five month lead time for these partnerships to start generating some bookings like in any real scale. And it was just too slow. Like the reality was we needed to raise more money so we could get somebody in who could just be like full-time sales winning these partnerships somebody else then who could work with them to optimize their integrations and somebody else like smashing the tech still because there was loads of work needed to be done as always on tech so we tried to raise more money um that pretty much coincided with liz truss losing out to a soggy lettuce and destroying the economy (laughs) Um, which meant that we couldn't raise any money because everybody decided actually investing is a horrible idea right now. The company just went into survival mode um, and essentially did nothing. Um, We ultimately turned everything off. That being said, the company still exists. So I said at the beginning that I'm spending obviously a portion of my time still on Porter. Um, And the company still exists with quite a big pivot. So we're still looking at hotels. But one thing that the past four-ish years have taught me is that one hotel tech is horrible and crap and legacy and outdated Two, the online travel agents like booking and expedia uh, have too much power in that industry and three thinking back to foot subscriptions are beautiful beautiful things how can i combine all of that and, and generate some value from porter so what we're looking at now is is more of a SaaS proposition um essentially wanting to provide best in class technology to help hotels um and specifically what we're looking at is upsell technology the idea being you book a hotel and then 
10 days, two weeks before you arrive, you get an email saying, hey, Alex, you know, I hope you're looking forward to your stay at whatever hotel. Would you like to add anything extra to your stay? Do you want a bottle of wine waiting for you in your room? Do you want some chocolates? Do you want to book a spa treatment? Do you want to upgrade your room? Whatever it is, um, we are essentially providing a top of the line bit of kit that will allow any hotel to do that seamlessly um, and generate essentially additional income for the hotel whilst also allowing guests to better personalize their stay and have a better experience with that hotel. That's still really early days, but there's some exciting, hopefully, things to come from that. Um, and I think that's, you know, I genuinely believe it's got legs. Um, there's a couple of other people looking at it, but nobody doing it well. We could just laser focus on doing this one thing better than anyone else. I think the, the that kind of mindset of like taking all the previous learnings that you've had from all the previous business and then each time, because you've, you know, you're, you're, you're not iterating on the same thing, but you've taken a learning from a previous thing and then kind of implement that going forward. And that's quite important, I think. And I think uh, some people don't don't necessarily learn from their mistakes. And it seems like you've done, you know, quite well at taking those learnings and taking them forward into the next thing you're doing and kind of dragging that experience with you. But on, on the sort of, you know, the, the way of looking at dragging things with you, how is the... I guess the kind of like your, yeah, you know, I was going to say your mental health, but yeah, you, you know, your your sort of how, how does it feel, sort of constantly running up against these challenges and always feeling maybe like you're you're a little bit too early uh, with some of the stuff that you've kind of been doing. Yeah, it's definitely been tough. So you are right that everything that I've done, I've done for a reason. So you know, I learned from Piazza and Accessories, you should know your audience. So then I did a student property thing because I'd been a student and I'd experienced that firsthand. Then I realized that we needed money to grow that. So when we did, we raised some money. Then going into Porter, I was like, well, I need something that I'm really passionate about, same as socks, but I need better investors who are closer aligned to what we're trying to do and buy into the vision. And, you know, we did that. Unfortunately, we couldn't get enough or enough money, but, you know, we did that. And then everything that happened at Porter, every time we changed, it was for a reason. So the initial premise, I believe, is solid. And other, you know, like you look at Layla, who are doing this and have raised money that, you know, there's obviously interest still in that area. That couldn't work because we didn't have enough money. So then we did collections. And, you know, we did that because we needed a way to get in front of an audience without paying any money. And then yeah. that hasn't worked or... Again, not that it hasn't worked, but we didn't have the money to support it long enough to, to, to scale it. So now we're looking at, well, are there opportunities where we can leverage all of our knowledge and experience in a slightly different way, but still within the realm of hotels? From a mental health perspective, um, yes, yeah, there's definitely been plenty of tough moments. The thing for me is that startups and entrepreneurship is a bit addictive because you get one taste of success or one little thing that goes well and it is the best feeling in the world. Then you spend most of your time dealing with lows and things going horribly wrong, but you keep chasing that high again because you know that if something goes well, even though that high only lasts a couple of days until the next thing goes horribly wrong, that feeling is so addictive. It's like a drug. Um, and so, yeah, the last year particularly has been really tough because it's just been frustrating. You know, we, we obviously raised a chunk of money and we just haven't been able to to get the output that we want 
and I don't think we've done anything particularly wrong. Like, yes, there's things I'd probably do slightly differently with all of the knowledge and hindsight that I've had, but I don't think we particularly did anything wrong along the way. It's just been a bit of bad luck, bad timing, and, you know, we got hit by COVID in the offset, then the economy falling apart, and, you know, like things like OpenAI, what that could have done to our business three years ago when we were doing that type of stuff and we were trying to build it from scratch, and now people can just get that a thousand times better than what we were building readily available um I, I remember there was like a period where you were going through and manually updating hotel descriptions because they were all yep. garbage but yep. you could run the, like the process that you were going through of like reading a hotel description rewriting it tidying it up polishing it up doing all that you could feed you could have done that in an afternoon yep. and you yep. spend months doing that now you just feed it all into open ai and say generate this take this data set give me it in this format and then I can just plug it into, you know, the, the database done. So from that point of view, it, the, there's a lot of frustrations. Um, you know, I've been throughout the process. I'd like to think I've been very transparent. I send our investors a monthly update. I still do. At one point, one of our investors, one of our first investors emailed me saying, look, I really applaud your, your resilience, but should you be thinking more about yourself and pack this in? I have thought about that, but I still, genuinely believe there's some value we can get from Porter and everything we've done and it what I don't want is to pack it all in you know throw away everything we've we've learned and kind of done over the four years and also I feel like particularly now when I'm speaking to hotels there is a bit of credibility that comes with the fact that we've spent four years working on travel technology building stuff in that sector I do believe that that does have some value you know, there's potentially things, I'm not sure what, but there might be things that we could reuse at some point that we built in the past. Like, just feels to me like there's still scope to do something. I mean, if this doesn't work, I don't think there is another option. So at that point, it is probably pack it in and figure out the next, you know, the next thing. But for now, I do genuinely believe there's still some sort of a future for Porter and hopefully a route to an exit at some point. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're kind of approaching it from the, the right sort of, the right direction. For definite um you've got this clear goal in mind and you're spotting the opportunities as you've been going and recognizing this is the way to the way to take it so while all of this has been going on with the porter stuff you said that you know porter takes up a smaller amount of your time now and looking at the, the startup and the innovation side of things tell us a bit about uh, innovators uncensored yeah of course so innovators uncensored came about from uh, a my own passion for startups but also recognizing that there's not a lot of information out there around the very early stages of businesses you know like you look at a lot of stories of businesses and it's like oh they started then they got some money and then they had a million customers and i'm like okay but like how like what stage were they at when they raised their first money like what did their deck look like or how did they get their first yeah. one customer 10 customers 100 customers like always kind of jumps and it's like they had no customers oh now they've got 10,000 customers and I'm like yeah but how did they get the first one like <laughs> it becomes easier at some point so the initial idea was can we create a bit of knowledge around those really early stages and and celebrate failure a bit more because there's lots of on LinkedIn you know celebratory stuff that's just over glorifying stuff like why don't we celebrate failure and talk about that a bit more and, and really look at those very, very early stages of companies. And also I just mm -hmm. 
you know, genuinely believe that outside of London, there's not enough support for startups. Like, I don't think Wales is a great place to launch a startup. You know, you're very isolated. There's not a lot of investors. The investors who are here don't really understand startups. Like the difference yeah. between the UK and the US from an investment point of view is American investors want to maximize return. UK investors want to minimize risk. And those things don't really go well with a startup, which is a very, very risky thing. So that's why in America, you hear all these stories of somebody being like, I've got an idea. And then somebody gives them a million dollars. Whereas here, it's like, I've got this business, it's making loads of money. And the investor's like, oh, I'll give you a tenner and I want 20% of your company for it. Um, it's, it's the it, Dragon's Den versus Shark Tank kind of thing. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's the idea behind Innovators Uncensored. We started off with a newsletter at the end of last year, which has grown really, really fast. Um, we've got a really good community of startup founders who read that. Every week we share like startup opportunities because one of the bit, most important things about running a startup is knowing what's going on and knowing the opportunities available to you. And that's not always easy to, to keep on track yeah. of that. So we share those opportunities, be it funding opportunities or events you should be going to. We share jobs within startup companies. We share marketing hacks, stories from real companies, uh, particularly focusing on kind of their early days or things that went wrong, uh, tools that could be helping you. And we also profile a different startup every week, because again, a big part of what we're trying to do is provide a bit of a platform for startups. Mm -hmm. We are moving into events as well. So we have our first event coming up at literally a month today, uh, the 21st of March uh, in Cardiff. And that's going to be a, a really fun night of startup founders, startup enthusiasts. Um, we've got the founder of Oggy coming in to talk about the early stages of Oggy, particularly talking about the failures or challenges and how they got their first customers and, and all of that. We'll have some, some fun activities. We'll ideally create a really uh, supportive place for people to collaborate and have fun. Both of me and Rich hate networking events. We hate going to those type of events that are stuffy and boring. We want to create something that people want to go to and enjoy being at and get to know people that they don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's kind of the what what a lot of people really want from networking events that's um you know in the in the startup world that's not your BNIs or your um yeah, exactly. those kind of events. There was an event in London years and years ago. It's probably been about ten years ago now, but I think it was called Glug. Um, and their slogan was not working, which I was quite liked, um, <laughs> cause it's, you know, networking actually not working. Um, yeah, I was thought, I was thought that was quite good. Like, it kind of made me want to set up a, a networking event at the time, but, um, just never, never, yeah, never, never came to, came to be, um, but with the, with the sort of the innovators uncensored kind of thing, do you see that there, there being a route into monetizing that? properly not you know not properly but um you know make, making a living out of that kind of media aspect of newsletters events um that kind of thing definitely i think i think there's um you know real potential for that to be a, re a really big company you know we've already had a few months worth of sponsorship of the newsletter so that's obviously provided some some early income that audience is just going to keep growing, which will become more valuable, which will mean there's more opportunities for us to, to generate income from that, like, you know, initially from sponsorship. There's also potential for us to do other newsletters, which are then more opportunities for, for sponsorship, you know, going in on different niches, for example. The events, you know, we're talking to sponsors about the events because we want to make things freer at the point of access for, 
for startup founders because we know startup founders often don't have money. So for us, it's how can we ensure that they're free and potentially earn something as well? Um, and we want to make the events national. So can we do, you know, if we can nail a really good job in Cardiff, which we're really confident we can, can we do things in Bristol? Can we do things in Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, Leeds, you know, wherever. So that becomes a much bigger thing. And then, you know, is there potentially a, a premium offering of innovators and censored where we can unlock access to things? It could be various support. It could be perks. It could be courses, training. It, like there's all sorts of different things that that could feed into something that's genuinely valuable and helpful for founders. And so there's, yeah, loads of things that are percolating under the surface that we're looking at right now. Amazing. I really, really love the the approach that you've taken with that and the steps that you could take to grow it and the fact that that could become a, a media business in itself, which I guess is another, you're taking the learnings that you've made from the startup world and then diversifying it slightly again uh, outside of travel and tourism, jewelries, um, jewelries, jewels, jewelry, socks, <laughs> soaps, and you know, you're taking that startup mentality and taking it to a whole new industry entirely, but capitalizing on the experiences that you've made through those businesses. So we're sort of running out of time now. This is kind of, uh, yeah, we've been recorded quite a, quite a while now, Gary. So amazing. Thank you so much. Normally, the last question I ask people uh, is, if you could go back and do anything again, would you do anything differently? And would you like to have ended up anywhere else? But I think you've answered that over the course of the questions that we've kind of come up with. So I feel like the better question, and there's something that I really want to know is, well, two, two actually. Uh, one, do you wish you'd finished your degree uh, and learnt Italian? fluently um, and sort of seen that through to the end and two would you ever consider going back to working at Admiral or another large corporate environment? In answer to the first question sometimes I regret not finishing my degree but not the business part just the Italian part that if I could have done that year abroad in Italy I'd have a really good level in Italian and be probably close to bilingual I don't feel like I'd have benefited in any way, shape or form from the business part of the degree. Like I learned so much at Admiral in terms of what it actually takes to run a business and had so much exposure to so many different areas. Couple that with all the startup stuff I've done, that's given me such a better grounding in life than the degree ever would have. I don't think it would have given me a leg up either. Yes, I might have got in like at a higher level in a job, but it would have taken four years. And at that point, I was already, I guess, moving towards investor relations at Admiral. So it wouldn't have particularly helped me. So from that point of view, no, like life's too short to regret. I wish I spoke Italian, but it's fine. Um, and in terms of in terms of going back to, to a corporate, ideally, no. I, I think even if I was running it, like, you know, if, if Porter or innovators and censored or any of these businesses and i've got other ideas for things that you know i want to explore in the future they all become huge businesses i don't think i'll be interested in running them i enjoyed the early stages the bits where you have to hustle and grind and fight for things to happen and where you're involved in all areas of everything from marketing to product to tech to you know business development you know all of it i i really enjoy those early stages i find startups too stifling and too bureaucratic and too pro and like i understand why this process is there but big corporates inherently don't want to take risks because they're big no. corporates like startups can take risks they can move fast you can 
have an idea in the morning and have it live with customers in the afternoon. Like I love that. If the rest of my life goes to plan, then hopefully no, I will never be working for a corporate. Oh, Gary, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on and um, yeah, talking us through the uh, colourful history um, of varying choices you've made and how you've ended up where you are. No problem at all, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to episode 8. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, I, think, I feel like I say that too much, maybe, but I don't know. I, I really hope you do, because I really enjoy making these, and yeah, I really hope people enjoy listening to them as well. Uh, hopefully the, the presence of the cat and the dog chat at the start and the slight change of format has been enjoyable. Let me know what you think. Please, drop me an email. I'd love to hear what other people think about the work that I do and the work that goes into this, and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just it'd be really nice to get, you know, to hear what people think about this. So, good or bad, uh, feel free to drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y-O-U dot com. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully I will be back next Monday, although I've got quite a lot of stuff on. Uh, so I think I'm going away for a couple of days. So I'm not sure if there will be an episode next week, but hopefully there will. No, I'm not. No, I'm not going to say hopefully they will. They will, they will, because otherwise that's giving, myself, that's giving myself a way out. So, yeah, no, there, there will be an episode next week. Who will be on it? I don't know yet, but I'll find, I'll make sure there is an episode next week. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like I say, feel free to get in touch. Let me know if you've got any feedback, any comments, uh, and you will be hearing from me again next week um, if you if you've got this far if you like what I'm doing uh, please subscribe follow follow yeah it's called follow now isn't it uh, on follow on Spotify and on Apple and YouTube as well this is on YouTube now for some reason um, yeah so please follow leave a good review um, just be great great to hear what people think about it and to share share it with your friends as well get other people involved get other people listening to weird career stories uh if you if you want to come on and tell your story get in touch we can have a chat hopefully it'll be quite nice relaxed and informal uh and yeah we can we can go from there so cool get in touch please uh leave reviews follow subscribe like comment you know all of that all of that good stuff and uh yeah i'll speak to you next week cheers <laughs>